times before and everything in between and everybody online. Massive welcome to you all. So we are looking at our series on the Eucharist. Um, my name is Bex, I'm on staff team here. And um, so, but yeah, it's a series on the Eucharist. We're going to call it the Eucharist series. So we're trying to get our heads into that. And we're asking um, sort of certain different questions about what we do often on Sundays. We've got the, um, what's what is described as the Lord's Table already set up down here. We're going to do that later, a bit of a kind of move into a practical element. But what do we mean when we think of the Eucharist? Is it just something that we do at the end of some services? Do we feel that we need to be doing well in our faith to take it? Is it just remembering Jesus' death or is it something more? I have a sort of interesting kind of like um, sort of sort of story with communion. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church. We had these tiny little cups that were handed out to everybody um, and just the most unusual smelling non-alcoholic wine. Impossible. I can still smell it now. And there was lots of washing up. I used to help out with the washing up at the end of services, washing like hundreds of small cups, which was very exciting, actually. Um, and then I went to a free church. My parents took me to a sort of very kind of free church and it was we were meeting in a big cinema and we were handing out chunks of bread. It was a little bit more like what we were doing last week. Um, and then um, I joined a Church of England church and I started training for ministry and then I started training to, to lead um, the Eucharist and I've sort of been on a bit of a journey and I think from something where I was often a bit like, okay, you know, this is nice to like now this being like something that's like so important to my faith and I think part of that is beginning to understand more of what it is and I feel like I would, um, yeah, basically I now just take communion the Eucharist like as often as I can because it's so precious to me and I feel like part of that has been around just learning something of what it is what's happening when we read about it in the Bible what's happening when we take it as a community and I think that really is kind of the invitation and my prayer for us as we journey through this series um, the church in capital C the big widest church that we're part of is often called the Eucharistic community because something how we are as church family is gathering and centered around the Eucharist. And the Eucharist, I think, is more powerful, more precious, and perhaps more important than often we have realized. It is at the heart of our faith because it tells us something about who God is and who we are, and it is a place of encounter. The church also referred to it as something called a sacrament, which basically means it's an outward sign something happening outwardly, of an inward grace. That in faith that we believe that something simple that we are doing, taking bread and wine together to remember Jesus' death as a family, something significant is happening spiritually. But that's not because of what we've done, but for who God is. Eucharist becomes this place of encountering God, a bit like we might find in a moment of worship or in prayer ministry, or reading the Bible, or when people um, talk about places as thin places, it's a place of encounter, because God reveals something of his nature and his action in the world. So we started last week, Matt looked at how the Eucharist shows us God's outrageous welcome and hospitality, that all are welcome at the Lord's table. And we gather around the, ch the church as, as church family, the whole of us, all around the table, which people have been saying to me, we're going to do again this week. We're not. I feel like maybe we should have done. <laughs> maybe we'll do that again. But it was very, very precious. And we ate bread and we drank wine and fruit juice and we shared other food as part of that. And it was so 
beautiful and very moving. And I just really want to honour Matt and Laura and that. On one hand, it was Matt pulling together this series and suggesting this, an amazing teaching. And on the other hand, it was also Laura just putting the whole graft in, getting all the bread, getting all the food afterwards, um, organising the amazing welcome team to help her serve that up. But for me, it actually felt like it was an overflow of who Matt and Laura are in their um, gift of welcome, in the characteristics they have of hospitality. Sorry, Matt, I'm embarrassing you. But I feel like a lot of people have said, last week was amazing. I'm like, I cannot take any credit for that. This was Matt and this was Laura Bolling calling that together. And it showed us something. It was a picture of this overflow of generosity that God has for us. And this week, we're looking at God the giver. So this is a hard act to follow, having started last week, but we've got an amazing topic. It is God the giver, and that's what we're looking at. Well, how does the Eucharist, communion, demonstrate to us how much God gives to us? So let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us about how you give yourself to us in this moment, in the Eucharist. Holy Spirit, would you roam our hearts? Would you be speaking to us as we... Look at your word, and as we take communion this morning, amen. So, God the giver is actually um, linked to the word Eucharist. Eucharist actually just means, it's a Greek word, Eucharistia just means thanksgiving. Because we are remembering, we are receiving, and we are giving thanks for a gift. Because God in Jesus gives us everything. And so what we're going to do is a little, little, little recap of the story of the hours that led up to Jesus' death, because this will help us to remember to do what we're doing and remembering, but it also tells us how and why, because at this moment, we'll read at the beginning, where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And the setting of this Last Supper that we think about is so important. In the Jewish faith, the way they had parties was often associated with remembering. They called them festivals and they gathered together like we might do for a party, but they did it in terms of remembering and they had specific remembering festivals. The Passover was the most important one. And that's because they remembered they were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out with miraculous signs and wonders and brought them into a spacious place. And so Jesus, and they remember it with a Passover meal. There's all sorts of different elements of the meal um, that the Jewish people still will do today to remember that. And Jesus almost like takes this meal and says, something new is happening here. Something in this bread, which is like my body that will be broken for you. And something in this wine, which is my blood, which is shed for you, is going to redeem not just the Jewish people, but the whole of mankind. He starts to explain to them what is going to happen to his death. They don't completely understand it, but he says, this is what is going to happen. This is how you remember it. And so that's why those verses are so important to us. That's why as a church, we, um, we celebrate, and um, we have the Lent and the run-up to Easter, because we take this moment to go, ah, oh, this is the essence of our faith. And this is why we celebrate communion, because we remember that whole moment um, as often as we can. So we're going to start in Luke 22. I have to confess, I was going to read the whole lot. It was 10 minutes, so I had to cut it down. So I'm going to do a little bit of paraphrasing, and then the pieces that are actually the Bible are going to come from the screen, just so you're not confused as to which is which. <laughs> but we're starting um, in chapter 22. First of all, we have this moment where Judas, one of the 12 disciples, um, one of Jesus' absolutely closest friends, 
um, basically goes to the Roman authorities and says, what will you give me to hand Jesus over to you? He knows that the Roman authorities have become increasingly upset by Jesus' teaching. They find it too radical. They cannot get their head around the fact that he might be the son of God when they should be the people that realize him. And they're starting to plot to kill him. And Judas comes to them at this opportune moment and says, what will you give me? And they say 20 silver pieces. And he says, great. And they arrange this um, for this to happen right before this happens. And then the, the disciples gather together for this Passover supper. Jesus tells them what to do. They meet in the room. And we're at chapter 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new promise, in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then they continue on in the meal, and the disciples classically have an argument about who's the greatest. And then Jesus had this moment where he says, one of you will betray me. And Peter, by the way, even before the cock crows tomorrow morning, you're going to say that you didn't even know me. And um, Judas doesn't really respond, but he heads out, and that's when he starts that kind of um, process of talking with the, um, about how to betray Jesus. Um, Peter turns around and says to him, absolutely, I would never do that. And Jesus starts to say to his you know, disciples, something is coming, you need to be prayerful. And they head up to the Mount of Olives, and it says they've been there before. And this is obviously one of these like, special places for Jesus where he prays, and he separates himself slightly, and he has this anguished prayer where he says, you know, if there's anything that, you know, Father, take this cup from me, but not your will, not my will, but yours be done. He doesn't, he knows what's going to happen. And he says to the disciples, take this time to pray. And he keeps coming back and falling them, finding them asleep three times over. They've got food coma, they've had a bit of wine. And he's saying, something is coming. This moment is coming. And they just can't, they just don't pray. I mean, how often do we have those moments where we would love to pray and we don't get around to it? And then he... Um, yeah, so then we have this moment where he's Judas and comes with the, the temple guards and they come at night because they can't arrest him in the middle of the day because he's just too popular. And Jesus betrays Jesus with a kiss. He comes over and says, Rabbi, and gives him a kiss and that's the signal. And he's taken away by the temple guards and they bring him um, and he is, um, so he's arrested. He is then questioned extensively. Um, Peter, who's um, sitting in the courtyard trying to overhear what's going on, three people come up to him and go, I think you were with Jesus. And he goes, absolutely no way. One of his best friends with three disciples who were his besties, he was one of them. At that moment, the cock cries, the cock crows. So that's going on through the night. And then you have this moment where everyone's kind of thinking, how best do we do this to kill Jesus? The, Roman authority, um, the Jewish authorities don't have the authority to do it because they're living under Roman authority. So the Jewish authorities then take him to Herod, the sort of the king of the Jewish, um, the king, he was called king of the Jews. And Herod says, I haven't got authority, let's take him to Pilate. And Pilate questions Jesus and just cannot find any reason why they should kill him. He, he refers to him as an innocent man. 
And yet, in that moment when he takes them out, the crowd, who've been whipped up by um, the Roman leaders, I mean, sorry, by the Jewish leaders, start baying for his death, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So you have this horrible mix of his, his friends betray him and leave him, his, um, the people who should have realized that he was the son of God are the ones who are pushing for his death. They whip up the crowd, the authorities, the people who should be there to be like, oh, let's have a bit of justice going on here, are just basically just do whatever's most convenient for them. And he's led, he's condemned to be crucified, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's whipped, and um, then he's off to be crucified. And so we're now catching up. Chapter 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they divide up his clothes with casting lots. The people stood watching, the rulers even sneered at him. They saved him, others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember we when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It was now about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Jesus gives everything. He gives himself completely for his best friends who betray him, desert him, and violently deny even knowing him. For the religious leaders who should have been the first to recognize that he was the son of God, but feel threatened by his popularity um, and authority and they arranged his death. For the fickle crowd who only a few days earlier were like, hanging off his teaching, welcoming him into Jerusalem, but were whipped up by fake news and the Jewish leaders. And they call for his death. Jesus died for Herod and Pilate, the political towers who knew it was unjust to kill an innocent man, but did it anyway to please the crowd, to prevent an uprising, to keep their power. Jesus died for the Roman soldiers who were there actually to keep the peace, that was their job, and to deal with criminals, but who nailed him to a cross and watched him die, who mocked him, who whipped him. Jesus dies for the two criminals who crucified either side of him, even the one who mocks him. The Bible said that Jesus died for every person before and since then, for all the things that we have done wrong, for all that is wrong in the world, so that we can be reconciled with God and with each other. God in Jesus totally gives himself for each of us. This is the message of the Bible. This is the message of our faith. And I was trying desperately over the last few weeks to think of some kind of example of sacrificing every day. And I have to be honest, my attempts at sacrificial being felt like a very pale reflection of anything that God gives. But I do remember a moment as I became a parent. I'm one of seven children. But as I became a parent, I realized the huge sacrifices that my parents made for me and my six siblings. And now that it was my turn for sleepless nights, 
and waiting up till they're safe home and a bit older, and shopping and cooking and clearing up and washing and school admin and taxing around and financial sacrifices and A&E trips. Very grateful for the NHS, do not like A&E. But in my busier, tireder, more selfish moments, I struggle to make these sacrifices for my own kids, who I love more than I can tell you. And then I see friends who are adopting and who are fostering, and I realize this is a whole other level of sacrifice. And in our home, we've been talking a little bit about the apartheid, something that one of my kids is studying at the moment. And um, when we look, we can see those broader things of people, the kind of sacrificial living. And in particular, I was thinking of the story of Nelson Mandela. He was imprisoned for fighting a terrible apartheid in South Africa. He was imprisoned in the most awful prison circumstances for 27 years for being part of that fight. I think it's almost impossible for us to really get our heads around what 27 years in prison is like. I think that's longer than most of us. Um, not me, sadly, but most of us here have been living. Um, and the men I see in Pentonville, not one of them has had sentences as long as that. And I can tell you now, time does not speed by in prison. It speeds by for us because we have things to look forward to and we're busy. It really does not speed by when you're incarcerated. But Nelson Mandela came out of that place able to forgive, and he completely dedicated the rest of his life, even by falling out with people who he was originally fighting for, to bring justice and unity in South Africa. And these were just my kind of like best thinking of like, what does sacrificial living look like? And we come back to the story and we see that God and his son Jesus gave everything. He gave the whole of his life for people who wanted him dead. Because the goal was something greater. It was the healing and it was the restoration of all people to God and to each other. And this very simple bread and wine, Jesus asks us to do the same. We encounter the God who gives. We remember, we receive, we give thanks. Eucharistia. And I think it's good to sometimes recognize that we struggle to receive things, especially if we don't think we earn them. I think we're so wired with our to-do lists and our kind of work sometimes that we feel like we only have a right to something if we have earned it. But I would love to um, think of this more as a gift like in a birthday. People don't just give gifts because it's the done thing. They give gifts as a way of saying, I love you. I celebrate all you are today this is why I give you this gift. That's the essence of a true gift. It's not something we've earned. It's something we're given because we are loved. And God doesn't say that thing that you did last night, this past week, even perhaps years ago that you might still remember means you're too simple. He doesn't ask us to go prove our worth. He doesn't go ask us to go punish ourselves for our sins because he took that punishment. Even and especially when we've messed up, all God asks us to do is to come to him to recognize him as Lord and to receive him in the Eucharist. And for me, the strongest kind of example of this is that prisoner who's crucified right next to Jesus, who's obviously done something terrible to have the death penalty, probably killed several people. And in this moment where he just turns around, he recognizes that Jesus, that Jesus is God. And then he says, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't turn around to him and think, well, you know, you haven't really got a bit enough time to say sorry to all those people or do your time in prison or whatever else. He just says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even when we've messed up, Jesus gives himself to us. We just need to come to him, 
recognize him as king and receive. But it's not just in our messier circumstances, it's also in the darkest of circumstances that we can receive. Jesus faced the darkest, loneliest, most painful experience, and then even death, so that we can receive in dark times. This week I read an article written by the Catholic Salesian Congregation reporting on the Christians that they had contact with in Ukraine, and it says this. A priest in the city of Irosarod, less than 20 kilometers from Kyiv, celebrates Mass, the Eucharist, in a bunker by the light of a light bulb. A tangible, emblematic sign that the Greek Catholic Church has not abandoned its faithful and the population. It has become a symbol of hope. Even last Sunday, the priest gathered under his house, under your house, I'm assuming they've all got big basements, it's the only safe place, with a few people and celebrated the Eucharist. Despite the fact the battle was raging, he says, the church has many options for help it can offer. The first and most important is spiritual and moral support, because people really need to feel the support, the strength, the presence of God, and also of their neighbors and of the world. Since this war, we have never stopped celebrating masses, the Eucharist. We also broadcast them online through social networks. We've never stopped visiting families, staying close to refugees, giving concrete help to people. Even in the midst of utter terror and destruction, these Christians are gathering to receive from Christ in his darkest hour to receive help in theirs. This Eucharist, this symbol of hope, is in our messiest moments and for the darkest of times. So we're going to do that right now. We are going to remember, receive, and give thanks. I'm going to move down to the table. Does everyone want to stand? And, and can I um, encourage the band to come up? And I'm hoping someone's gone to go let the kids. You've told them already. Fantastic. Thanks, Dennis. So as I've um, said, everyone is welcome at this table. Um, kids can come up if they want to. If you would rather receive a blessing, we're really um, happy to do that for you as well. You're going to be offered um, a wafer. Um, I'm really sorry that we can't do the whole like, bread thing like we did last week. I'm feeling like this is a poor reflection, but actually, this is what we're doing this week. But it's, it's also, um, it is the same thing. We're essentially sharing bread and wine together as church family. If you're online, if you want to grab um, juice or water, bread or cracker, um, and also, we have gluten-free if anyone needs that. Just let me know. Um, do you, yeah, you guys ready? And Pete, I think, was going to come and give me a hand as well. Fantastic. So I'm going to say the words in white, and we're going to respond in yellow. And it's really good just to really think about the words that we're saying, because actually the words that have been written actually tell the story Sorry, having a few technical moments. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation. 
In your love, you made us for yourself. When we turned away, you didn't reject us, but came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children and welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ, you shared our life, that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. On the night he was betrayed at supper with his friends, he took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. At the end of the supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His blood is shed for all. As we proclaim his death and we celebrate his rising in glory, send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. We eat and drink these holy gifts. Make us one in Christ, our risen Lord. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. Draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for each one of you, and his blood which he shed for each one of you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Okay, so we're going to have one um, pun here, another here. If you want to just start to come through, that'd be great. <laughs> 